This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is sponsored by the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Visit our historic campus and see how we prepare ministers of the gospel for faithful service. Learn more at sbts.edu visit. All of the gods, whatever they are, they all demand their upkeep. The gods may promise freedom and fulfillment, but in fact, they burden you. They weigh you down. They make you have to maintain them. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, Are You Carrying Your God?, was preached by John Fulmar at the United Christian Church of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates on November 2, 2018. The text is Isaiah chapter 46, verses 1 through 13. Listen now to John Folmar on Are You Carrying Your God? When the economy turns down, everything is affected, including religious observances. A while back in New Delhi, for example, daily donations to the gods were dwindling. One account said every morning Hindu devotees haul buckets of fresh creamy milk to the neighborhood temple then close their eyes and bow in prayer as the milk is used to bathe a Hindu deity. At the foot of the statue, they leave small baskets of bananas, coconuts, incense sticks, and marigolds. This is their service to the gods. But recently, Ram Gopal Atre, the head priest at Prachin Hanuman Mandir, noticed donations thinning for morning prayers. So apparently, as disposable income drops... Even the gods are affected. Donations of milk were down as much as 50%. Priest Atre met with colleagues from other temples and even imams from mosques. They all reported similar declines. And the priest said, if poor people don't have enough for bread, how will they donate milk to the gods? This is very serious. Well, are the gods actually affected by economic turmoil? Do these deities benefit in some way from the milk bathings and the donations of fruit? We in a Christian church would say, no, they don't. Of course not. The gods are not pleased with such acts of devotion. These perhaps well-intentioned people are pursuing the wrong gods in the wrong ways. But we should ask this, are we really all that different from those Hindu worshipers? Do we ever live as if our relationship with God is based on something we do? If not donations of milk and fruit, then perhaps donations of money or energy or time. Do we labor under obligations to maintain our relationship with God. Doesn't God help those who help themselves? Whether in India or in Dubai, you know, all of the idols, they all demand their upkeep. If you're serving the idol of career and you don't sacrifice what the career demands, then you lose your job. If you're servicing the idol of a relationship and you don't please the other person the way he or she demands, you lose the relationship. 
If your idol is a perfect body and you don't sacrifice to what that idol demands, there goes your self-esteem. All of the gods, whatever they are, they all demand their upkeep. The gods may promise freedom and fulfillment, but in fact, they burden you. They weigh you down. They make you have to maintain them. So here's the question. Are you carrying your God, or is your God carrying you? Let's turn this morning to Isaiah 46. Isaiah chapter 46. You can find this if you're using a Bible in front of you on page 515, page 515. I would encourage you, especially if you're a visitor, have a Bible open so you can confirm that what I'm saying is coming from the Bible and not just my own opinions. Okay, page 515, Isaiah 46. <clears throat> Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born from me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. To whom, then, will you liken me? and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this. And stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Two simple questions this morning. Are you carrying your God or is your God carrying you? First, are you carrying your God? That's what Israel was tempted to do, because just look at all the neighboring countries. They all had their divinities, who all made their demands on the people. We need to remember the historical situation. God had chosen this one nation, Israel, to be His holy people. So this was actually a true theocracy 
for a period of time. That is, a nation whose, whose head was God Himself. A unique kingdom chosen out of the world, not because they were any wiser than anybody else, not because they were morally superior, not because they were more powerful militarily. No, it was only because God set His affection on them for the sake of promises He had made to their fathers. In His grace, God rescued these people out of slavery in Egypt, and then He planted them in a promised land, and He actually lived with them in the temple, through the temple worship. But alas, Israel turned their back on God. They broke faith with Him, and so God resolved to punish them and to kick them out of the promised land, send them into exile in Babylon. The tool to accomplish this was the Babylonian Empire. The army came in and burned down the temple, destroyed the city. In those days, the fortunes of the nations were bound up with their gods. People thought, well, if Babylon defeats Israel, then the Babylonian gods must be stronger than the God of Israel. You can understand the thinking. But Isaiah knew better. Looking ahead, he foresaw that one day, Babylon would be punished for what Babylon had done. God would raise up another empire, Persia, to come and defeat Babylon and restore Israel to the Promised Land. So, should Israel be tempted to trust Babylon's gods? Would those deities be helpful in time of need? Look again at verse 1. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on, burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Isaiah saw a day when Babylon's gods would be evacuated. It says they go off in captivity. Bel bows down. That's another name for Marduk, the patron god of Babylon. You know, these gods infused the culture. So you remember Daniel, the uh, Jewish boy who was exiled into Babylon. His name was changed by the ruler to what? Belteshazzar. So you see the bell even in his name. So they were, they were being enculturated into the pagan practices. Of course, Daniel resisted nobly. Well, that's bell. Nebo stoops. Nebo's the son of bell. Nebo was the god of wisdom and writing, who every year wrote on the tablets of destiny and determined the people's fate for the coming year. So there was a great New Year celebration in Babylon in the ancient days. And these two gods would be carted through the street in royal procession. It was the highlight of the religious year. And no doubt many of the exiled Israelites would have seen this happen as these two gods were carted through the city. But Isaiah foresaw another procession, one leading not through the city, but out of the city. Persia was coming. Isaiah saw the end of Babylonian civilization. I mean, where's Babylon now? Under the sand of Iraq. Verse 2, they themselves go into captivity. Powerless to save. Just a lifeless burden being carried on poor, weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They can't save the burden. 
They're carried on pack animals. The gods were in a state of collapse. By the way, who worships these gods today? Have you ever met someone who worships Bel or Nebo? Had you ever even heard of them before we got to this chapter? And yet, millions of people all over the world, even today, are worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Those gods have slipped into oblivion. The gods of Babylon, they won't carry you. You'll have to carry them. Look at verse 6. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Now, think about this. If a god can't help itself, how can it help you? Notice verse 7. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. And they set it in its place. And it just stands there. How pathetic it all looks. Nailed down, presumably. Made stationary so it won't topple over. It's unable to do anything. After all that effort, after all the investment of verse 6, if one cries to it, it does not answer. More like a dead corpse than a living God. That's how idolatry is. You know, when you need it most, it lets you down. And it's also costly. Did you see verse 6? They lavish gold from the purse. Maybe that's to pay the goldsmith, or maybe that's to provide the content for the statue itself. All for a God who cannot speak or save. Let me make two quick observations on this. First, notice all the sacrificial giving in pagan idolatry. I mean, it says they're giving lavishly. It couldn't have been easy parting with gold and silver from your purse. I wonder, do you and I give with a similar zeal to worthy gospel causes? And how do we handle stewardship as compared with them? When there is so much need, there is so much ministry to fund and support. Are we looking for a religion that costs us nothing? And yet these idolaters, they're giving lavishly, zealously. What you need to examine your own heart on this. If you are a church member... What is your commitment to this assembly? Well, we promise in our church covenant that we will contribute cheerfully, generously, and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel for all nations. So I would just ask you this. Does your zeal in giving match what we see the pagans are doing there. And then a second observation. Do you see the deceptiveness of the human heart here? I mean, I'm sure that not all of the pagans of 
Isaiah's day, were giving so generously. Many of them would not part with their silver and gold, but even that shows an idolatry. Matthew Henry said, some lavish gold out of the bag to make an idol of it in the house, while others hoard up gold in the bag to make an idol of it in the heart. You see, idolatry takes many forms. For some, it's buying. For others, it's hoarding. Whatever you're trusting in, whatever you're ultimately hoping in, that thing is your idol. It could be in the house or it could be in the heart. What is it for you? Someone said, God made man in his image and man has been returning the favor ever since. We create little godlets, little divinities. And for a while they may look impressive. They may promise fulfillment and satisfaction. But when you need them most, they let you down. When one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. So who is it? Who is it that's doing the heavy lifting in your life? What is your burden this morning? What's the one thing that you think, if I could just have that, I'd be happy. If I could just have that new electronic device, I'd be fulfilled. If I could just have that girlfriend, I'd be happy. If I could just get that new furniture, I'd be content. I don't know what it is for you. It could be shopping. It could be hours on Facebook, video games, reading frivolous novels. These things, whatever they may be, they might even be fine in and of themselves. But when they begin to take up too much mental space, when they begin to preoccupy you, they become dangerous. They become your burden. You have to carry them. David Pallison says, they always up the ante. You watch more movies and listen to more music. You exercise harder and longer. You think, this video game isn't graphic enough. That vacation isn't exotic enough. This pornography isn't explicit enough. They fail to deliver on what they promised. Weren't you made for something much more, my friend? Are you confusing an idol for the real thing? C.S. Lewis once said, If pleasures are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols. They are not the thing itself. Pleasures are only the scent of the flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. I wonder if you've begun to see that in your own life, that the things you've been living for are failing to deliver as they promised. Are you carrying your God? Or... Secondly, is your God carrying you? Here is the great contrast between the true and living God on the one hand and all the pagan alternatives on the other hand. The one disappoints and depletes. The other satisfies and saves. 
Friends, our God doesn't ask us to carry Him. He carries us. It's the other way around with our God. Look at verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am He. Into gray hairs, get this, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. You see the difference there? False religion is based on works. True religion is based on grace. False religion, you've got to carry the, the carved image yourself. True religion, the living God carries you. Here is a God who promises, I will carry you. And not only that, He follows through with it. Just look at, look at your personal history. You have been born by me from before your birth. That's what God says. So when you were still in your mother's womb, you were vulnerable, you were defenseless, but there God was, sustaining you even then, even before you knew Him. And if you're a believer, you have a promise that He will never abandon you, even as you grow older. It says, even to your old age I am He, and to gray hairs I will carry you. For some of us, that's already happening. Old age creeps in, feebleness, pain, trouble. Maybe you've seen this in your grandparents, and how they declined and perhaps passed away. Maybe you've begun considering it recently regarding your parents, and how you may need to care for them. And, if you're wise, you've even begun to reflect on the fact that it will one day be true of you. Friends, here is hope for the coming days of trouble. If you know Christ, if you have been truly reconciled to God, then you won't face those difficult days alone. Right? He will go with you through the trials and disappointments. Even to your old age, I am He. The idols can't say that. Not truly. Look at verse 5. To whom then will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike? Well, the answer is no one. There's nobody like Him. Friends, this is the message we desperately need, especially, I think, here in Dubai. My wife and I were in Nairobi, Kenya last week. Uh, Carrie was speaking to a women's conference. I had the privilege of preaching in a wonderful, encouraging church, much like us. As we were returning Tuesday night, as the plane was descending into Dubai, this flashy Emirates marketing video of Dubai came up on the screen. And anything else you're doing on the screen turns off, and you have to watch that. You're a captive audience. <laughs> and it shows the glitzy airport and the posh hotels of Dubai and dazzling vistas and fine dining. And for a moment, I was mesmerized. Yes, jet skiing and jumping out of perfectly good airplanes would satisfy me. <laughs> I was lulled to sleep by the promises of Dubai on this video. So what does God say to us in verse 3? He says, listen to me. Same thing in verse 12. 
Listen to me. It's like he's, he's grabbing us by the lapel. He's awakening his covenant people, as he refers to them in verse 3. Oh, house of Jacob. Also called the remnant there in verse 3. The remnant of the house of Israel. You see, the majority of Israel had abandoned God. They had broken faith with Him. They had consorted with the, the idols and the false gods. But for the remnant, for the chosen minority, God said, listen to me. He's waking us up. Look at verse 8. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. So God's question in verse 5, who is like me, is answered in verse 9. There's no one like me. He's not only a Savior, He's the Savior. He's making exclusive claims. Here we have the absolute uniqueness of the Sovereign Lord. Now, the world says all religious beliefs are equally valid because they're essentially reduced to religious sentimentality or feelings. There is no objective reference. It's all about feeling. Dubai says that. Even probably the majority of Muslims that I've spoken to would say, we're all worshiping the same God. The different religions are just different paths climbing the same mountain. Okay, but what does God believe about God? What does it say there in verse 9? I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Was Jesus any different? Didn't he say that he was the exclusive way and truth and life? What did he say to Pilate? He said, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. To which his executioner said, what is truth? You know, Christians are not people who claim to have exhaustive knowledge of all the mysteries of God. We don't claim to know everything, but we do know some things truly. Why is that? Because God has told us. God has revealed some things so that we can know them absolutely with true truth. Remember the futility of the carved images, God is saying. He's also saying, remember what only I can do. Look at verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. What God says actually happens. Predictive prophecy proves that He is the one true God, declaring the end from the beginning. Nobody else can do that. I mean, all of us want to know the future. Why do you think the Weather Channel is the most popular channel on American television? We want to know the future, yet none of us can predict it. But for God, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purposes. Friend, meditate on verse 10 this week because this means He knows better than you do how to run His universe and how to run your life even.
And so when his plans contradict with yours, you can trust him, even if it means difficulty and sadness and disappointment. And I'm not saying that's easy. But this is how faithful Christians have carried on throughout church history, even amid tragedy and trial. Think of George Mueller when his wife died. How did Mueller continue caring for all those orphans in the United Kingdom, all those four orphanage houses that he had established? He was heartbroken at the loss of his wife of 39 years. And yet there was still the work to do. There were still the orphans to feed. Well, he explained it in her funeral sermon, which began like this. The Lord is good, and He does good. All will be according to His own blessed character. Nothing but that, which is good like Himself, can ultimately proceed from Him. If He pleases to take my dearest wife, it will be good like Himself. What I have to do as His child is to be satisfied with what my Father does, that I may glorify Him. After this, my soul not only aimed, but by God's grace attained to. I was, says Mueller, I was satisfied with God, even in the midst of the grief of the passing of his wife. You see, Mueller believed God would accomplish all of his good purpose, even though Mueller didn't understand how or why. Even though painful, he trusted God's purpose was ultimately good. Is that how you will respond? You know, God never gambles. God never takes risks. All that happens in this world is a certainty. He is finally accomplishing all of His sovereign purposes. I don't mean He's responsible for the moral evil in this world. Fallen humans, fallen angels, they're the ones who are morally responsible for the mess, the mess that we're in, including us. But God remains in control of all of these events, even the most wicked of them. He even uses evil and suffering to advance His good cause for the ultimate good of His people. So, is your future subject to good luck charms? Celestial motions? energy fields, or is God really sovereign? Is He really on the throne, ruling over human history, even over the worst things in life, like verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. This refers to a military conqueror Cyrus, we saw back in chapter 41, 44, 45. Cyrus was the one who was raised up to defeat Babylon and restore Judah to its promised land. Cyrus was called a bird of prey from the east, from Persia. The man of my counsel. Not that Cyrus gave God counsel. God doesn't need the advice of you and me. But that Cyrus would carry out the predetermined counsel of God. It was God's plan. Isaiah was announcing it more than one century before it happened. So all of this is prospective. It's predictive prophecy. It wasn't up for debate. It wasn't a matter of probability. No, it says, I've spoken. I will bring it to pass. I've purposed. I will do it. 
Well, these were the things God wanted His people to remember. Remember. You know, so He says, listen to me, verse 3. Remember, verse 8. Listen to me, verse 12. He alone is God. He alone controls your future. If God is for you, friend, who can be against you? Verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. You see, God carries us. He bears His people in His arms like a good shepherd. Now, if that's true, why the stern language? Did you see verse 12? Why does He call them, you stubborn of heart? You who are far from righteousness. Well, He calls them that because it's true. We are stubborn of heart. God's people are by nature far away from His righteousness. Not even close. Now, perhaps in its historical context, Isaiah is thinking here, of Israel's shock that God would use a pagan emperor, Cyrus, to deliver them and even call them his Messiah, his anointed. But how dare they question God's goodness? How dare they question his purposes? The truth is God carries us not because of us, but in spite of us. So God addresses unworthy sinners here. And what does he tell them? What does he say to them in verse 12? Does he command them to go out and get salvation through their own effort? Or does he tell them to go obtain righteousness through their own good deeds? Verse 13. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. So this is a unilateral, one-sided, free gift of salvation. This is justification by faith in the Old Testament. Now in its historical context, the salvation referred to here in verse 13 refers to the return from exile. So salvation would be demonstrated through God ultimately bringing people back into the promised land. But friends, I hope you see this historical return, which did happen, is just a shadow. The substance was something much greater. you ever heard the saying, God helps those who help themselves? You know, that's not in the Bible. The Bible says just the opposite. The good news is that God helps those who are far from righteousness, verse 12. Who can't help themselves. God is holy and we are not. In order to enjoy fellowship with Him, we must be set right with Him somehow. What we need is an alien righteousness, one that's from outside, that's given to us. The good news is that this right standing is freely given in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Son of God came from heaven 2,000 years ago. He existed eternally in joyous presence with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. He came into the world and took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life of righteousness and obedience to His Father, and He chose to die on the cross in the place of anyone who would ever turn and trust in Him. Jesus died, and He was buried. And then on the third day, God raised Him from the dead in triumph 
over sin and death. And He invites everyone to repent and to turn and trust Him. You know, a lecture will never solve your problem. Therapy will never solve your problem. Starting over will never solve your problem. You need a righteousness from outside, from heaven. That's what the Son of God has brought. Look at verse 13. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. This was Isaiah's promise, and then centuries passed. Empires rose and fell. And then one day, riding into Zion, it's another name for Jerusalem, riding into Zion on a lowly donkey came Jesus Christ. As promised in Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. It was promised that the King would come, bringing salvation personally. He came gently, but He came bearing the gift of salvation and righteousness. Here was God's perfect representative, the exact representation of His character. Riding into Zion, God not only stood behind this King, God was in this King. This King was God Himself, come to save. It's very curious that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, He chose not to come in on a war horse, but on a humble beast. He had come to make peace through His blood shed on the cross. When Christ was crucified, He bore the penalty for everyone who would ever turn and trust in Him. And so God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Spurgeon explains it best. If I understand the gospel, it is this. I deserve to be lost forever. The only reason why I should not be damned is that Christ was punished in my stead. And there is no need to execute a sentence twice for sin. On the other hand, I know that I cannot enter heaven unless I have a perfect righteousness. I'm absolutely certain I shall never have one of my own, for I find I sin every day. But then Christ had a perfect righteousness. And He said, There, poor sinner, take my garment and put it on, and you shall stand before God as if you were Christ. And I will stand before God as if I had been the sinner. I will suffer in the sinner's stead, and you shall be rewarded for works which you did not do but which I did for you. It's the best news in the world. In Christ, God has brought His perfect righteousness. He's brought it near and given it freely to undeserving people like you and me. So what are you trusting in today? Are you trusting in Christ, the King who came from heaven, or some paltry substitute? You may not be tempted to trust in Bel or Nebo or to bow down to carved statues. But what are you tempted to trust in? In his book on idolatry, Tim Keller admits, We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community. 
to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and privilege. So what is it that you are bowing down to? To whom are you paying homage? Are you carrying your God? Or is your God carrying you? Let's pray. Lord, what an extraordinary feat that the living God, the Son, took on human flesh and came and personally delivered righteousness to us. And that in turning to Him, we can receive that righteousness credited by faith. Lord, thank You for this free gift. Thank You that You have caused so many of us in this room to be set right with You in such a way that Your holy standards were never compromised. You are indeed just and the justifier of the one who trusts in Christ. Oh, that You might be honored for that gift. Oh, that we might ascribe praise to You. We might be set free, no longer laboring under the burden of idolatry, but celebrating the God who carries us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.